0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. The the ushers are going to move through the auditorium about now. They have sermon notes. If you don't have them from the bulletin, just raise your hand. They'll hand that to you so you can follow along. We're headed to Psalm 23, as I mentioned already earlier. We're going through that psalm. And while you're turning there... Let me remind you about something that we did last week Is I used a story that a reading from a book that's called A View from a Zoo. It's a gentleman, his name is Gary Richmond. He worked in the Los Angeles Zoo and he's talking about some events that happened in his own life while he worked at the zoo. This one story is dealing with a snake. How many of you just love snakes? Yeah, you're with me. I just can't stand it. Can't stand it. Don't you and he asked this question, don't you just hate king cobras? Yeah, yeah, I know. I do. I came by that feeling honestly. Our zoo had a thirteen foot giant king cobra that seemed to be the to be the embodiment of evil. He had a scar over his left eye that made him look mean and more significantly kept him from shedding his skin in a normal fashion. At least twice a year we would get the dreaded phone call from the reptile house and they would say, the cobra shed his skin last week but the eye cap didn't come off, looks infected, suppose you and the doc come down and clean it away. Now the snake's skin includes a clear scale over the eye to protect it from sand and foreign objects. Snakes have no eyelids so they have no way to blink for protection. The snake's scar prevented a normal shed of the the skin so the eye cap needed to be surgically removed. We made the appointment for the next day. Arrangements were more critical for this procedure because of the extreme danger. Only two people at the zoo could take responsibility for grabbing the more deadly snakes, and this was the most deadly of all. This snake's venom glands contained enough poison to kill 1,000 adults, a fact that seemed to come up every time we did this procedure. <laughs> the curator of reptiles was assigned to grab the head. The two reptile keepers were to steady the body. When the snake was subdued, the veterinarian would begin the de- delicate surgery. His arena kept him inches from a lethal injection. His job was to furnish Uh, my job was to furnish scalpel, sponge, hemostat and anything else to expedite the procedure. The capture of the cobra would go as follows. The five of us would take our positions. The two keepers stood on either side of the large cage door. The curator stood in front of the door about six feet away. The vet and I stood on either side of the curator about ten feet from the door. The keeper's only defense were sheer bird nets with two foot handles. I would not do this. I don't know what you (laughs) With a nod of his head, the curator was would signal for the door to be opened. Seconds later, the king cobra appeared. As soon as he saw us, he'd stop, spread his cape, and rise to full stature. The cage was two feet off the ground, so we were all looking at the snake at eye level. The cobra was trembling with excitement as he, in turn, stared at each of his five enemies. He seemed to be choosing who would be his prey. The curator was the chosen one this day, and with shocking quickness, the snake lunged forward, hissing and growling with malevolent rage. With lightning speed, the skilled keepers placed the sheer nets over the snake's head, and as he pushed to get through, the curator firmly grasped his neck just behind the venom sacks. The keepers grabbed the writhing body, then the curator would nod and say, let's get this over with. The pressure was incredible. The vet's hands were trembling and beads of sweat began to run down the curator's forehead. The curator turned to me and would say, do you have any cuts or scratches on your hand? No. Then get a wad of paper towels quick. I do so. Now put them in the cobra's mouth. No. (laughs) The king watched the paper towels as they were carefully positioned to allow him to bite them. He bit down violently and began to chew. The towels would become yellow with venom until they began to drip. The curator would continue. Did you know several elephants die every year from king cobra bites? A man could never survive a bite with a full load of venom. That's why I'm having you drain the venom (laughs) sacks. I think the emphasis is upon the venom sacks. My hands are sweaty and my fingers are cramping. When I let him go, it may not be quick. I may not be quick enough. More people are bitten trying to let go of snakes than when they grab them. You get weak quickly when you grab the big poisonous ones. <laughs> yeah. There are many situations in life that are parallels. Easy to grab, hard to let go. So it pays to think twice before you grab them. Indebtedness vengeance, lying, adultery, drugs, alcohol, pornography, promiscuity. These and many more are serpents that will drain your strength and bite you to death while you're trying to let them go. That's why the Bible says there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. What he does, and I mentioned last week that throughout the book he takes different situations and scenarios like that and uses them as illustrations of spiritual truths dealing with animals. David does the same thing in Psalm 23. David, from his experience as being a shepherd, remember he grew up as a shepherd boy years before he became king. He's living in a land that there's a lot of shepherds. What he does is he writes this entire psalm about God from the perspective that he's the sheep and God is the shepherd. He's making this analogy and drawing some spiritual truths. Now, what's interesting to note if you go through your Bible and I've just done a few select verses this is not the only passage that calls calls God the shepherd and us the sheep, let me just highlight a few of them that that talk about God being a shepherd in Psalm 80, give ear O shepherd of Israel, who led Joseph like a flock, and that goes on, who dwells within the cherubim and shine forth, and etc, etc the point is, God is called a shepherd in multiple passages, like in Ezekiel where God speaks and says I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel, they shall lie down in in a good pasture land, etc. God elsewhere has it recorded where in Isaiah 40 he is speaking about himself and Isaiah's being led to say behold the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, his arm shall rule for him, his reward is in his hand, his work before him, he will feed his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And again we have that whole concept that God is portrayed as a shepherd we the sheep in Micah. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your heritage who dwell solitary in the woodland. Now the, the, in fact it's built upon that in the Old Testament this analogy is portrayed about Jesus Christ in the future. You have the quote in Ezekiel about God sending another shepherd. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them my servant David. This is reference to Jesus. Jesus the son of David coming in the future. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David a prince among them. I the Lord have spoken it. Jesus picks up on this and Jesus refers to himself like in John chapter 10. He says I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep where he says I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by them. Elsewhere in the New Testament we have those comments like Peter talking to the, the preachers in the church. He says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, this is after telling them, be a good shepherd to your flock. When the chief shepherd shall appear he will then, you will then receive a crown if you've done the right job. Again Christ is the shepherd, the chief shepherd. We read about that in the book of Hebrews where it's talking about now the God of hope that brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep that, through his blood. And so we have this redundant statement, repetitious statement that God is a shepherd, we are the sheep. And there's many more you can find. But David in thinking about that, in reflecting about you know, a song and saying, you know, when I think about God and I think he's a shepherd, it moved him to such excitement, to such comfort, to such peace, to such energy that he wanted to compose a song, a psalm, a hymn. And he wrote down with his enthusiasm for God, the way he takes care of us, what he provides for us, and he highlights a number of those distinctions, those, those graces, those kindnesses that the shepherd shows his sheep. And if we were to just continue on from verse 1 where we were, what exactly excited David about being a part of God's flock? He, he makes it very clear. Last week was that personal relationship. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Today, let's talk about several other things. David was enthused as he reflected and back in his life, in his old age. He says, you know, God, went the way he provided for me, the provisions he made for me, In fact, he's highlighted that in several ways in the text. He says very clearly, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. That's the way that the Hebrew would be more distinct. I shall not lack anything. Then he goes on, he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, if we think about that a moment and put ourselves back in his time period, back in that day when he's there and looking around the area, we would understand that this was quite a, a remarkable statement. He is talking about really lush pasture land. The words that he uses is the idea of not just, oh, hey, there's a, there's a little bit of you know, 10 by 10 area over there where there's some greenness. He's talking about a fresh new pasture overflowing with lush grass for the sheep to eat that's especially amazing when back in that region they had it was arid back in that region they their grasslands were very limited to a season and he's saying but god keeps on doing this all the time as if there is perpetual grasslands that would require a lot of work from the from the shepherds to make sure that they are keeping some of the territory where they would keep the sheep more seasonally keeping it irrigated keeping it where it's able to grow getting rid of the rocks getting rid of those things those foreign objects that would keep the grass down and then he says he makes me lie down. It's not the idea of just okay I'm just going to you know, take a quick nap. It's the idea to stretch out to really relax, to be absolutely dead to the world. To really get full rest, the REM rest. Now in reading a number of different, different authorities who deal with the sheep especially those in the Middle East, they keep on pointing out that the sheep in the Middle East in particular, that the sheep that David's talking about, referencing, there are certain things that would keep them from resting. There are certain needs that they have. There are certain events that would surround them that would prevent from lying down in green pastures. And basically they, would, they summarize them this way, that there's you know, the idea of food, they're hungry. There's the idea of the flies that are bothering them, that are being pesty. There's the idea of fights between the sheep. That if there's an irritation or one that is irritating nearby, they don't rest so well. There's the idea of having something that is making them fearful, something that is threatening them, that they feel threatened by. And so if we were to just pause and say, okay, if we are like the sheep, how is it, what is it that in the same way keeps us from resting in the Lord, keeps us from really, when we come to worship, to really worship? It might be our distraction. When we're trying to pray, it might keep us where our prayers hit the ceiling and bounce off so we feel. It might keep us from totally trusting the Lord. These same things are true in our life. In the sense that all of a sudden when there is a restlessness of our soul, when we haven't gone to the word of God to find peace and we're just, we're overcome by a difficulty, we're overcome by a circumstance and we're not feeding on the word, there's a restlessness, there's not a peace. When we talk about the flies, those, those pests, those irritations that bother us that afflict us. It might be other people. Not you people, but it might be other people. Okay, it might be circumstances. It might be that irritating co-worker. It might be that, that train coming across Lebanon, where all of a sudden they always come when you're headed across the tracks, and they irritate you. It might be just something that goes awry. That refrigerator that works when the repairman's there, but it stops when he's not. Those irritations, those flies that bother us, the besetting sins that buzz around our head, the fights. James talks about that the believers, when they get together, that there's wars and rumors of wars going on around about them and they're attacking one another. It happens. That at times believers get into conflict, that there's this rivalry for a certain patch of esteem within the church, of recognition or attention, and that can take away our peace. That can cause us not to be able to rest when you know there's conflict between you and somebody else. If there's conflict between you and a family member, it's tough to sleep, it's tough to rest, it's kind of like it's there, it's bothering you. As well, we have that idea of the fears that the wild animals would threaten them. We have the wild animals. We talked about it in in the adult Bible study here a few moments ago about the wild animals of the spirit world. How Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. and We talked about that aspect of how we are under attack, Ephesians chapter 6. That there are things that cause us to fear. The trials, the troubles that can afflict us and affect us and take away our peace. What David is talking about, he says, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd and as I follow the Lord I'm able to handle those things. He's able to take away those fears. He's able to help me to resolve those conflicts. He's able to help me to handle the trials and the circumstances. He's the one who's able to make me lie down because he gives me the ability to overcome the besetting sins in my life. And so David is praising God, and David knows this, he's been through it. Do remember that at the moment David is writing this psalm, he is on the hunt. He is being chased into the wilderness by his son, who is revolting against him as the king and trying to take his kingdom. His life is threatened. He has some soldiers with him, but he's had to leave behind some of his family members. He's had conflicts, he's had troubles. Early on in his life, his father-in-law tried to kill him several times. That's King Saul. His, his, his wife, Saul's daughter, had a terrible marriage with him, and she left for another man. He's been, he's been afflicted. He knows what it's like to have the fears and the flies and the, the hunger of the soul. He knows what these, this is like, and he's saying, but I found that my best resting place wasn't in going shopping. My best resting wasn't in sitting and watching TV. My best peace of spirit and mind came when I went to the Lord. And as a shepherd, he made me to lie down in green pastures. He fed my soul. Not only did he feed me and give me, but he gave me the idea of he led me beside the still waters. That's what we read. We know this. We know these facts as we go on and talk about some of the other comments in verse 2. We know that water is necessary. We know it would be even more pressing in that region of the world if you're in an arid desert area. The word he uses here is when we think still. We think, okay, a pond with no rippling. That is not the Hebrew word. The Hebrew idea is refreshing waters, cool waters. The water says more like an oasis. You know how it is when it's hot Like yesterday afternoon when he hit that humidity and hot and he says, uh, a glass of cold ice water, you know, iced tea or whatever. He is saying, that's the waters God provides for me. In the midst of all this difficulty, God provides for me and the idea is that the shepherd, meeting this need, David says, he always gave me enough to fill my heart. He gave me enough to satisfy my soul. he He never had to say to me, okay, you only get a little sip. We're rationing this out. The Lord, he provided so that I could get enough to eat, I could get enough to drink, so that I could lie in peace and comfort and satisfaction. And that would require protection by the shepherd. Now remember, Bible days, a watering hole wouldn't be just for the sheep. You got other animals that are going to be attracted there. The shepherd not only had to prepare sometimes to say, okay, here's a watering hole by digging, digging into an area where the spring could come up within the rocks or creating a pool by putting some rocks out there by a stream that was rushing down and capturing some of it, but he also had to, when he was there, make sure that when the animals are coming and he's leading that there isn't something there that's going to attack them, something that's going to endanger them. And so the wording that he uses, and this is important in verse three, and then we'll see it again in the next couple of verses afterward, he uses the word Nehal, that is the idea of he gently leads me. He's not driving as if I'm so anxious to get to the water, you guys better get here as well. Okay, it's like you know, Hershey Park. You know, I I, I love going to a place like that and watching parents having a fun day with their kids. You better like this ride. You better stop crying, we're having fun here today. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Come on, come on, you, you get some joy in your life. Yeah, okay. The, he, this isn't the way Jesus shepherded. Jesus is, he's saying that, he, David's saying that the way God shepherded him, he's, he led them gently to a place of safety, to a place where they are feeding. And David is saying this happens over and over and over and over again. That's what it all pointed out in the original language that he does this. He doesn't just do it once and say, My duty has been fulfilled, I'm done. But God keeps on doing this in my life time and time and time again. And when I sit down and think about how God provided for me, I'm thrilled. And I want to write a couple verses of poetry that really made me excited about it. Now, exactly what is he talking about? The spiritual water. The spiritual feeding. That idea that David's spirit was refreshed. That his soul, when he was exhausted by the pressures of life, when he felt overcome by the difficulties other people were going, he could go to the Lord and the Lord was his respite. The Lord was his oasis in the middle of other conflicts and troubles and challenges financially and health-wise and at work and the pressures of college and exam time. The Lord would give him the peace he needed. The Lord would provide that help. And he's saying that this would give me opportunities so that I could rest Relax. And remember now, if the sheep don't rest, and if they're always stressed, it's going to affect their, their product of their wool. They're not going to be able to produce the way, you know, in the lambing even. They're, they're, for them to grow, there needed to be moments of respite. There needed to be moments of the feeding. There needed to be the moments of being able to calm down. It's, it's like you, yes? You need a break, or you will Break. And so he is saying in this text, this is what God did for me. What exactly is he talking about? He says, there are moments where I could go and have meditation. There are moments where I had prayer. There was moments where I could pause and I could reflect and reevaluate my life. There are moments where I could get the rest I needed spiritually, physically, obviously. But in all these areas, he says, and despite all these troubles and these problems and these difficulties... The Lord is my shepherd, he shall I shall not lack. He leads me, he says, by the green pastures, makes me to lie down by the still waters, and there God provides for me. Can we make an observation that's really important at this moment? Spiritual activity isn't the way, you know, keeping busy isn't the way to grow, growing spiritually. Now, is it helpful? Does it, does it facilitate in our lives some trust in the Lord when we're active and we're building up and trying to help one another? True. But sometimes we get so busy in the work of the Lord, we forget the Lord of the work. And we start substituting the teaching, the, the nursery, the ushering. We start substituting the music. We start substituting all these activities for the simple spending some time with the Lord. Talking to the Lord. Examining our lives before the Lord. Sitting down and letting God feed us the way we need to be fed. And by the way, take us away from some things that aren't good for us nourish-wise. And so it's that idea that you and I need these moments. And God will give us these moments. He wants to work with us and He will help us to have these moments if we're following Him, if we're relying upon Him, where He can help really build us up and strengthen us, and give us the strength, the comfort, the help we need to face another week. Sometimes it's here. Sometimes it's just in your Bible reading. Sometimes that building takes place when we just pause, and we go in the backyard, and look at the sky, and look at the stars, and just sit and say, God, what are you trying to teach me this day? Sometimes it's like one of the men was telling us this week when a couple of the preacher boys and I were calling and he said, oh, I fell off the ladder and I'm laying on my back in my kitchen and I looked up and said, Lord, what are you trying to teach this old fool? Okay. Sometimes it's those moments. But it's the idea that God provides for us. It's taking the moments for God to feed us. It's taking the moments to just relax and rest in the Lord. And you you and I have to ask this question. When's the last time we paused in the busyness of our life? In the busyness of the kids? In the busyness of work? In the busyness of doing things for the Lord that are good? When's the last time you just paused? And you just fed at the Lord's table. You just drank at the fountain of grace and let him talk to you. Let him speak to you. When you stopped the mad rush of life and opened up his word and said, feed me. When's the last time? When's like, you say, well, you're doing it right now, Wayne. You're, we're doing this. And yet some are thinking, when are you going to get done? Yeah, let's get this over with. Okay. Just, Lord, speak to me. We did a little bit experiment with the preacher boys this week. I told them, I said, I want you to go aside and um, I want you to do nothing but praise. I've told you about, the, about my experiences of doing this years ago. Is Don't thank. Just don't, don't ask a thing from God. You time, time yourselves from the moment that you just sit down on a chair somewhere private and you start thanking God. You time yourself to how many, how many things you can thank God and how often you go thanking without saying, oh, and by the Lord, would you please... Lord, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my car. Oh, by the way, I need four new tires. Okay, stop right there. Okay, we stop. Okay, and time yourself. Oh, I did all of eight seconds. So I had the preacher boys do that. I came back to them after an appointment and was talking with them So said, how long do you do? And the majority of them had that experience. They said, it didn't go long. In my mind, I thought I was going to go for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes and somewhere a couple minutes and less than a couple minutes. My first time I did that, I thought, man, oh days, I have prayed so long I must have been praying for an hour and a half in Thanksgiving. And I looked when I timed myself and it was a minute and 35 seconds. And then I thought, okay, now I'm really going to get serious. And I did some more and I think I'm hit a minute and 45 seconds. We aren't given to Thanksgiving by nature. We just expect and assume and we want more. But if we pause and reflect, by the way, would that help us with the spirit of contentment if we praise and thank more? So the idea is, you know, give thanks. The idea of simply read, the idea of praying, he says, I'll feed your soul. I will take care of you as much. Now that's the one thing David got excited about. He got excited about something else. He got excited about, I'm gonna, I'm, I wasn't sure which one. You can use either or both here. The power of pardon that God gives. Watch what he does in the next phrase. As he reflects upon what God does for him as a shepherd, he makes this praise part. He says, he restores my soul. And that, that's, that's just phenomenal what he says in those words that seems so, so simple, that seems so trite, and yet it is so profound what he talks about. In this passage, as restoring the soul, has the idea that what he does is he refreshes me. He helps me catch my breath. He is like a, night's, a good night's sleep to my spirit. Then all of a sudden I feel revived. I feel like I can go again. I don't feel so overwhelmed. In talking about this restoring the soul... There are several different, different books that talk about, now here's one author who's a, a Christian writer and he describes it this way that he thinks what this restoring is from dealing with the sheep that he dealt with is getting the sheep back on their feet. It's called in his, in his shepherd terms, which he was, it's called casting the sheep. And he goes on and he describes what this is all about. A cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays away frantically struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will bleat a little for help, but generally it lies there lashing about in fright and frustration. If the owner does not arrive on the scene within a reasonably short time, the sheep will die. This is but another reason why it is so essential for a careful shepherd to look over his flock every day, counting them to see if they are able to be up and on their feet. If one or two are missing, often the first thought is... Where are they? Is the sheep cast? I must go and search for them, get them back on their feet. One particular ewe that I owned in this flock was notorious for being a cast sheep. Every spring when she became heavy and lambing it was not uncommon for her to become cast every second or third day. Only my diligence made it possible for her to survive from one season to the next. One year I had to be away from the ranch for a few days just when she was having her problems so I called my son aside, told him he would be responsible for her well-being while I was absent. If he managed to keep her on her feet until I came home, he'd be well-rewarded. Every evening after school he went out to the fields faithfully and set the old ewe so she could survive. It was quite a task but she was but she was rewarded she rewarded us with a fine pair of twin lambs. It's not only the shepherd who keeps a sharp eye for a cast sheep it is also all the predators. Buzzards, vultures, dogs, coyotes, cougars all know that cast sheep are easy prey and death is not far off. This knowledge of any cast sheep is this knowledge that cast sheep are helpless, close to death and vulnerable makes the whole problem of cast sheep more serious for the shepherd nothing seems to so arouse his constant care and diligent attention to the flock as the fact that even the largest fattest strongest sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and become a casualty actually it is often the fatter sheep that are the more easily cast i jump down further During my own years as a keeper of sheep, perhaps some of the most poignant memories are wrapped around the commingling anxiety of keeping account of my flock and repeatedly saving and restoring the cast sheep. It is not easy to convey on paper the sense of this ever-present danger. Often I would go out early and merely cast my eyes across the sky. If I saw black-winged buzzards circling overhead in their long, slow spirals, anxiety would grip me. Leaving everything else, I would immediately go out into the rough wild pasture and count the flock to make sure everyone was well, fit, and able to stand on their own feet. He goes on. He says there is something intensely personal and uh, uh, intensely tender and endearing yet intensely fraught with danger in this picture of the shepherd going out to help his sheep. On the one hand there is the sheep so helpless, so utterly immobilized through otherwise strong, healthy and flourishing moments. While on the other hand there is the attentive owner quick and ready to come and rescue the sheep. Every patient and tender and help, ever patient tender and helpful. At this point it is important to point out that similarly in the Christian life there is an exciting comforting parallel here. Many people have the idea that when a child of God falls, when a when, when child of God falls, when he is frustrated and helpless in his spiritual dilemma, God becomes disgusted, fed up, and even furious with him. That's not the case. One of the great revelations of the heart of God is given to us by Christ is that he calls himself the good shepherd. He has the same identical sensations of anxiety, concern, and compassion for cast men and ladies as I had for my sheep. This is precisely why he looked on people with such pathos and compassion. It explains his magnanimous dealing with the down and out individuals for whom even human society had no use. It reveals why he wept over those who spurned his affection. It discloses the depth of his understanding of undone people in whom he came eagerly and quickly ready to help and to save and to redeem. The Lord would leave the flock to go and find the one lost sheep who could be cast. Aren't you glad God does that to us? That God doesn't give up on us? That God when he knows that we have stumbled and fallen and David David is a classic example of this. He says, this is what God does for me, that God has helped me out. He restores no matter how often I've done it. And by the way, the Hebrew is over and over again, he restores. No matter how far we have fallen, David had fallen far. He's in his old age. He's looking back over his life. Man of days does he have times when he was cast, when he fell on his back. The, the one that most everyone here is thinking when we think about David is David and the story of his sin with Bathsheba. When he was ultimately cast in the sense that he committed adultery and then murdered her husband to cover up the pregnancy. And yet he says, God is the great shepherd. He restores my soul. That he came back and he built and he worked with me. This God is kind. I, Hershey has the new rides, right? Some of you have taken them. It's this ride that's supposed to be fun. They take you in the air and they let you fall to the ground. And it's supposed to be thrilling. You know, it's one of those rides as you come down you come off the seat. You know, New Jersey had one. Years ago we took the youth group over to um, um, what was the one called there? great adventure, yeah. And we were standing in line and watching the teens do this ride and teens came off and they said to, uh, my brother and I had uh, probably, it was when he was pastor here and I had gone away for a couple years and started another church and so we combined the youth groups and the teens came out and said, oh it's so cool, you put a, put a nickel dime quarter on your leg and when it starts falling, this free fall, it'll, the, the coin will start floating right in front of your eyes. Oh, this is exciting. Yeah, this is, this is, I want to see money. Yeah, most of my money goes, this money's just going to kind of float this way. So the the teens were like, oh, you guys are chicken, you guys are chicken. Well, when they said that, you know. The male pride says, let's be stupid, let's go on the ride. So we're on the ride, we're, we're on this, this thing, and there's some teens that we've never met before, we're talking to them in front of us, and they say, oh, it's a great ride, it's, you know, it's a fun ride. It's just, you know. And my brother, who is very nervous, because he has a fear of heights, I don't know how he got on this ride, but where he's talking to these guys, he says, well, give me, what's it like? And they said, it's like an elevator ride. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like an elevator ride. He says, oh, really? So it's not that bad? They said, no, it's just like an elevator. So we go on the ride, we get on there, and there's Pastor Binkley, myself, and my brother. The three of us have have changed those bars. You know how they're supposed to have certain grooves in them for the hands? We put three new sets there. There's totally, totally different. When that thing started falling, the other two guys were screaming so loud. It was amazing between Earl and Dave screaming, but I could barely hear them because I was screaming louder. So we're falling down to the ground, watching our coins go in front of us. We get to the ground. And these three old guys are getting off and we we look like three drunks. We're staggering off of this ride and those teens that were in front of us had stayed t- to watch us. <laughs> and my brother wobbles up to him like this and he says, I thought you, you said it was like an elevator ride. They said, yeah, with the cables cut. <laughs> they hadn't told us that part. Okay. And they're laughing and they're laughing and they're having a good old time at our expense. <laughs> God never misleads us so he can laugh at our expense. God never lets us go through such a traumatic experience that you pay money for. God, never, God, God doesn't do that just for his jollies. Our God doesn't do that to us. Our God is so caring for us that when we fall, he's there to help us up. He restores our soul when we turn to him, when we repent, and David is just filled with it. He has moments throughout his life when he is cast, when he has fallen, when his family forgets about him, when he, he's criticized for even doing what's right, when his wife leaves him. doesn't want anything to do with him because she was a reward for his warriorship, so Saul gave him Michael or Michelle as his wife. He the one story that really stands out to me more than any is First Samuel chapter thirty is David is leading his troops in battle. He is, he's got his 500 mighty men. They occupy a town that the Philistines had occupied. It's called Ziklag. He moves his wives there. He moves his kids there. He moves his troops there and their families, and they're just outside of Israel's territory, so King Saul can't get to them, and yet they're on the border where they can still be helping out the Israelites behind the scenes and keeping the Philistines in the dark, and they're in this town of Ziklag. David leads his troops on a raid and they go against the Philistines secretly and they wipe out all the Philistines so nobody could tell the Philistine kings who it was. And he comes back and his wives are gone. His kids are gone. All the people of Ziklag are gone. Raiders had come, come through the town, took everything and burned up all of their goods. They have no home, they have no food, they have no family. His troops at this moment, his troops get upset with David and they say, why did you lead us here? David is at a low moment. David, has, he's, been, he's been ordained to be the next king and here, here is what he gets rewarded for fighting Goliath. His own troops are against him. He's lost everything. He is there and and the king is against him. The people of Israel called him an outlaw. The Philistines want nothing to do with him. He is a destitute, deserted, lonely individual, broken. And the passage says he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. And then it says this. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. He took the moments, goes to the Lord and he's refreshed. He rallies his troops and says, let's get our families. And from there on, we see the climb of out of this pit and things coming together for him to be able to eventually become the king. Did you ever hit a zigzag moment where you just feel like the bottom has fallen out and you did a free fall and it's not funny and you didn't pay for it? And you obviously uh, didn't even go into the free fall and let yourself be buckled in. It just happened to you. And you're going, God, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't know what I'm going to do. The Lord knows what you can do. The Lord knows how you can handle it. And the Lord will give you the power, even the pardon, that you need to keep on going. Oh, David's story, it's filled with other things that he did. But he looks back as an old man and he says... God, I am so thankful for the power and pardon you gave me at times. I am so thankful for the purity you gave me. It enthuses me. It excites me when I look back over my, yay, 70 years. I look back and see that you provided for me. I look back and see that you gave me the power, the pardon I needed at moments. And God, you gave me purity. You worked in my life. Look at the next phrase. Look at the phrase where he says in this text. He says... He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What he's talking about in this text is real simple. It's real clear if you go back. He's talking about God leading us to do what's good and right. The paths of righteousness. Now it's very clear we need this because all we like sheep have, okay, we as sheep usually don't follow that which is best. We, if we are like sheep, we could go into real dangerous spots without realizing the danger spiritually. You know, there's a, there's a news story that came out of Turkey here a couple of years ago. And it's talk 10 years, 10, 13 years ago. It talks about this one sheep of these multiple flocks together that the shepherds kind of lost track of, so to speak, when they're all together. And all of a sudden, this one sheep went to the edge of this cliff and it jumped off. It wasn't pushed it just jumped off, a suicide sheep. Okay, The sheep jumped off. As soon as it did, some more followed it. You know that thing your mom would say? You know, if Billy jumped off a cliff, would you jump too? They did. Okay, 1,500 of the sheep did before they were able to try to steer this massive flock away. Of those sheep, by the way, just, just to help you, you know, who are sympathetic to the sheep, they didn't all die. Only about the bottom 450. <laughs> the others, the pile got bigger and softer, and so the most of them. <laughs> Isn't that the bright spot? <laughs> True story. True story. That the sheep just. And we go, how stupid of an animal, you know, yeah. Now some of you are thinking, well, I can see. I work with some sheep like that. Yeah, you know, you know. Some of my relatives. Ah, that explains it. Seriously, before we, before we cast too many stones at those dumb sheep, let's pause and say, we follow, we follow others. Adam and Eve, they were told to doubt God's word. Did God really say this? Did we ever doubt? Did God really say he'd answer my prayers? Did he really mean me? They, they wanted to have something they thought would be good. It says, their eyes, they beheld it. Do we ever see something that's forbidden, but it really looks good? Do we ever balk at being restricted? You can't have that that certain fruit. You have all the rest of it here, but you can't have that one. And we go for that one. You know, it's just human nature. Do not touch wet paint. And if it's your kid, your kid is looking at you going, okay. <laughs> do you, you know, listening to denials. Do we ever listen to somebody deny that disobedience will be, it's okay. You can, you can go against what God says and you, you won't get into trouble. Do we ever, you know, do we ever think God is treating me unfairly? You know, by saying we can't do this, we can't do that. And we say, oh man, Satan says to us, Oh, God knows if you eat that fruit, you'll be as gods. And we believe that lie. Does it ever happen? That we want to be our own authority, rule our own lives, and be as our own gods? Does it ever happen that we go against God's clear, distinct commands? Like those dumb sheep. No wonder he uses the description. That's what we are. We need We need the shepherd that he's talking about to lead us in the paths of righteousness. Otherwise, we're going to go to the paths of unrighteousness. In this text, this leading is unending. He has led and continues to lead time and time again. He keeps on leading me in the paths of righteousness. Oh, it's very personal. He is leading me in the paths of righteousness. David says, this isn't a group thing. This is what God so cares for me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And by the way, he's using in the original language very, very specific terms. The idea of this path isn't singular. It's the idea in the paths of righteousness, which it's not the idea that there's many roads to heaven. It's the idea that in many of our responsibilities at work, there's a path of righteousness. At home, there's a path of righteousness. When we're dealing with friends, there's a path to righteousness. When we're talking about entertainment, there's a path of righteousness. The way we dress, the words we use, the way that we handle finances, paths of righteousness, God covers it all. And what really strikes me is, this isn't an untested path. The word literally for paths of righteousness are ruts. Well-worn paths of righteousness is the Hebrew word. The idea is that others have done this and have followed this and probably the one who who laid the rut the best was Jesus Christ, that we follow in his example. As we go through the text, this is the different leading. In the King James, in our English translation, he leads me beside still water. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Two different words. This one is not the idea of, come on, come on, this is the idea of he takes the stick and says, get over here. This is more intense. This is more determined. This is more stringent. The shepherd, you go this way. This is the way you're supposed to be going. And if you get off off venture, if you get out of where you're not supposed to be, there's going to be consequences. And so what he's got here is he's got the man of God, the apple of his eye, who has blown it big time saying, he continues to lead me. He leads, led me in the paths of righteousness after I committed the ultimate crime. He didn't give up on me. He didn't, he didn't ignore me. But he came, he rescued me, he set me on my feet, and he led me on how to get things put back together again. That's grace. That's the God we worship this morning. That should stir up praise and ad- admiration for this God who does the same thing for you and me, who doesn't quit on us, who doesn't give up on us, but when we turn to him in repentance, he helps us to go down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The point that David is making is this. Our divine shepherd wants what's best for us so we can better magnify his name. So he leads us. He provides for us. He pardons us. He purifies us. He is working in our life constantly this is the God that we're worshiping. One preacher put it this way. He said, what's amazing is, is sometimes some things we just get tired of doing. His granddaughter wanted to fix him a really special breakfast for his birthday. So his granddaughter fixed her favorite cereal for his birthday, Lucky Charms. Okay, that was, good. <coughs> Grandpa, this is going to be, I'm going to make it for you. The only problem is he hates Lucky Charms because he hates marshmallows. And you know Lucky Charms? They are filled with marshmallows. The marshmallows and Lucky Charms are like the stars of heaven. They're innumerable. <laughs> and in the box they're like rabbits. They keep on breeding. So Grandpa gets the bowl of cereal. The little girl's there smiling at him saying, you want to bite it? He says, I'll bite it, but i want to take a few of these marshmallows out. He said an hour later, he is still fishing for marshmallows. And he got so sick of trying to get rid of all the marshmallows that he decided it wasn't worth it, except for she sitting there. Do you think God ever says, it's not worth trying to get rid of the marshmallows of your life? I quit. I am tired of trying to get this out of your life, trying to get this out of your life. I'm tired of trying to get you to do this right or that right. That's it. I just give up. No. His, his direction, his leading is unending. And David says, not only does that throw me, but what God gives me on top of that? This peace. Well, watch with this next phrase. He goes on, he makes this comment. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Interesting. Interesting how this unfolds in the original language. We have shadow of death. Literally it has this idea, very deep darkness. The valley of very deep darkness. Could it be death? Physical death? Could be. But it is rather that idea of something that is so bad, so terrifying. Could be a trial. Could be a trouble. It may not be physical death, but it's something that feels like this is so overwhelming, like death. This is so inescapable, so impossible to handle. And he writes and he says, you know, this is the way that that things happen in my life. Now I find what's really interesting is put the two verses together since they go together. God leads me in the paths of righteousness and when he's leading me in the paths of righteousness I may end up in the valley of the shadow of death. Wait a minute, they seem like a contradiction. Not really. Can God lead us into dark places where we don't know what's ahead? Can God lead us into a spot where we get the willies because of all the shadows going on all around us? Can God take us into moments where we feel like there's no hope? Does God ever do that to us? Yeah, because when we feel there's no hope, where do we have to turn to? And sometimes we don't turn until we get to those moments. And so here he's saying, and he's telling us that not all adversities of life are because we've done something bad. Sometimes God is leading us, and he's doing that so he makes something better out of our lives. There's a story that came out years ago, and it's talking about the tablecloth how God led in two people's lives. The story first showed up back in 54 shortly after the war. <coughs> and it's about a young couple that goes to New York City, they're starting a church and they're taking this old building, old church building. And in this old church building that they're going to start this, this street missions that um, the building's pretty in pretty rough shape. But they want to get it fixed up. So with the help of some others, this young couple, they start painting the inside and doing some things to it and starting to fix the holes in the plaster. And you know how some of those old buildings, horsehair plaster, you know how that works? It gets, you know, some falls away and it just keeps on peeling away. So they have worked on it for a while. And they were so excited. It's two weeks before Christmas. We're going to have their first service on Christmas Eve. And they're advertising it through the neighborhood. And people are talking about coming. And that night before, they get a rainstorm. And there was another leak in the roof that they didn't know about, but they found out the next day when they came to the church. What happened is there was a leak that was above the area, uh, whatever you call this area, platform area, and chancel area, whatever. And it leaked down the wall, <coughs> and the plaster came loose on that wall. And where there wasn't supposed to be a stained glass window, there was one now out of the middle of the plaster. It just, you know, a, a section like 20 feet by 10 feet just fell off the wall. And the pastor and his wife come in and they go, oh no, there's no way they can fix this. And it looked horrible. And as you can see through some of what little bit of, of insulation there is, you can see outdoors, we, we just can't do a service. What are we going to do? And so they started headed for home just thinking, what are you all, know, they, they went up on the roof, did what they needed to up there, and wondering what they're going to do, and they as they wa- were walking home, they stopped by this one store that was doing a used uh, store, doing some close out business, and they thought, well let's just go in and kind of look around, and just see if we can find anything for our house, whatever. And so they're doing that, and the wife calls the husband over and says, hey, look at this. She found a tablecloth that had been knitted with different designs on it and, and sewed into it. I shouldn't say knitted, but the design sewed into it. And she says it's beautiful. And in the middle of it was this cross and it was about 20 by 20. And it was this huge like tablecloth that was just, you know, whatever they, whoever used this, it was just amazing. And it was hand done and it was gold and beautiful. And so they thought maybe we could use this. So they they bought the thing and they took it back to church and it covered the hole. And so let's keep on going, let's fix it up. And so they're they're you know, a couple few days later they're working on it and when they got to the church, they were going to church work on it and they come and it's starting to rain outside, snowy rain. And they run into the building and they saw this little old lady out there by the stoop. She was trying to (coughs) get out of the rain and she said, well she missed her bus and now the bus isn't coming for 45 minutes. She was just in this area looking at a job, uh, job position. So they invite her in the building and the wife sat and talked with her a little bit and the husband's up there fooling with the tablecloth and getting it up there and getting it on the wall and the woman just got up Stopped talking to the wife and just walked right down, came up on the platform and stared. And the preacher turns around and his wife's coming up to the lady saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? And she says, would you look at the corner and see if there's initials EBG? She, he looks at the corner, yeah, there's so many initials EBG. She says, those are mine. And he goes, what? <coughs> she said, they, <coughs> she and her husband were in Austria, right at the beginning of World War II. And um, she had made this beautiful tablecloth for when they would do commu- their church would do community type things and put a whole bunch of tables together and she made this special tablecloth that they would use for these church meetings and uh, and meals. And she said what happened was then um, shortly, you know, in in their first year of marriage or so, what happened is all of a sudden they got invaded by the Nazis. And um, they knew that they would be threatened because they were believers and they wanted to get out of there. And so she left the country. They had enough money for her to flee and get out and he was going to follow but the Nazis took over, and he never followed. The last she heard, he was in a concentration camp, and he had died. And so she says, you know, and the, the, the pastors and wife, they're crying, and they're saying, here, you can have the tablecloth. And she goes, no, 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 use it. You know, use it. That it's beautiful there. And she walked out of the building crying. And uh, they moved on. Next week's their service, Christmas Eve service. And when they're doing the service, at the end of it, one of the f- people who came was the clock, the watchmaker down the street, little old man. Right away you know where this is going, don't you? Yeah. So why even tell the rest of it? Because some of you don't have a clue. Uh, so, so what happened is after the service, a little man comes up and he says, where'd you get the tablecloth? And they're talking with him and he says, my wife made one just like that when we were in Austria, but she died when the, she tried to escape, but I was told that she had been killed in her escape. And so the preacher's like, wait a minute. I gave a lady a ride home last week after we talked with her, um, which that was a detail I just forgot, um, that he had given the woman a ride home because he felt so sympathetic for her. He says, and I know where she is, and I think you want to meet her again. So he takes him across town, and this guy and wife are reunited after years of being separated. And it's, yeah, it's a story you go, ah, let's get it out of our system. Ah. It's a God thing. Does God lead in trials at times? that are difficult? Sure he does. Sure he does. But the Lord is gracious in those times that even though we go through them, and by the way, we're supposed to go through them, not around them. The Lord is assisting. The Lord is helping. And David says, you know what kept me going through the valleys? When my own son is trying to kill me, what keeps me going through that whole time? You are with me. Do you see the rest of it? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, you're comforting me. That those tools of protection and guidance, that two-foot club, that six-foot staff, he says, you are always there, God, I am so moved by the way you care for me and guide me, even through some difficult moments, even through those financial difficulties, those job problems, those family problems, God, you make a difference in my life. And I can't help but stop, he says, and praise you for all the great things that you do in my life. Oh, We can go to multiple passages where that presence of the Lord is so important. Moses, you're going to go on a job that's going to be overwhelming, but remember, I will be with you. I am going to speak before Pharaoh for you. Joshua, you're taking over Moses' job. You're going to lead the people, but remember, as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. Remember this, apostles. You are going to go out now and preach the word of God. You're going to be uh, opposed. You're going to be attacked. But remember this, he says, and lo, I am with you always. You know how it works for us? We got trials. We got troubles. We have difficulties. But I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he says. And David can't help but respond and say, I'm giving you praise for this. That you are with me no matter what. That your presence is there. That your comfort is there. And this is the God we worship." This is why we gather today. This is what God wants us to reflect upon when we set aside some time. Not about taking moments where we can sit down without, without being distracted and plan the menu for the next week. This time isn't so that we can sit here and we can think about, okay, what am I going to do and I've got a few minutes where nobody's bugging me and I can just kind of listen with one ear and do my own thing with my other. This is designed to worship him and to think about him and to thank him and to be moved by this God that we worship. That he gives us these gifts. That he blesses us this way. That he moves in our lives. That he guides in what we're doing. That he as the shepherd is doing all of this for us. Feeding, protecting, guiding, directing. Which would bring to our hearts the response that David had. To God be the glory, great things he has done. He is a wonderful Savior. He is a magnificent God. Which, this week, where do we go from here? Can I encourage you to do a couple things this week? Why not write your own psalm about God's grace? Why not you take the time and reflect and write your own poetic or non-poetic version of this is what God means to me as my shepherd. Why don't you do this this week? Make sure you know this God. If you are here this morning and you are not sure you know Him, what I'm talking about is this, is making sure that He who came to this world and gave us life is your Savior. That you have called upon Him to forgive you of your sins and that He is your Lord. That you know Him personally. Not just off in the distance like God, but the idea is I take you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. An intimate relationship—it's called getting born again, becoming really one of His family members. This week, we, uh, one of our one of our grandkids, had the experience of finding a pillow, uh, a feather in her bed. It came from the pillow. She came out of that bedroom saying, "Mom, Dad, I found a feather in my room. There's a bird in our house." We have got to find this bird. In her simple childlike faith, feathers mean birds. And her thrill was, I want to find the bird. In our simple childlike faith, guidance, protection, forgiveness means there's God. We need to find him. If you have never yet been born again, then in a moment when we sing, right by those doors we'll have people standing. They'll take you down the hall and show you from the Word of God how to be meeting Jesus Christ personally as your Savior. And I ask you to do this with me this morning. Praise God. Sing and worship to God who is good to us. Worship Him in song as we close thinking about how great He is. If you would like to talk with somebody about your spiritual destiny, go ahead. Our staff is headed right over there right now. You can go as we sing and talk with one of them but join me in a song. We sang it already. Wonderful words beautiful words about the Lord. Always good. Guiding and directing and leading in our life. You sing with me If you'd like to go and pray with somebody or talk with somebody, you do that. While we sing together about God's grace Looking back I can see your fingerprints Upon my life Always seeking my best There were times When your way would make no sense But as you said You have never left You are always good. You are only good. You are always good to me. Though my eyes can't see how my heart believe. You are always on. Let's stand in worship singing about his greatness and his goodness. Looking up, I can see your sympathy. I doubt myself, but I'm sure of your love. Lavish grace was poured out at Calvary curing me for our... We are the sheep singing to the shepherd. YOU ARE ALWAYS GOOD YOU ARE ONLY GOOD YOU ARE ALWAYS GOOD TO ME THOUGH MY EYES CAN'T SEE HOW MY HEART believe. YOU ARE ALWAYS ONLY GOOD YOU ARE ALWAYS GOOD You are only good. You are always good to me. Though my eyes can't see, how my heart believes. You are always only good. Father, thank you. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for being our shepherd. Help us to praise you this day more and more. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thanks.